You're listening to Playback, a Variety iHeartRadio podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. This week we have actor John C. Riley on the show here to discuss his work in a range of films, including Western The Sisters Brothers and the upcoming Disney sequel Ralph Breaks the Internet. He's got a busy year ahead. So sit tight. This is Playback. You take care, Matt. Thanks for coming in, man. My pleasure. We are already up and running. So I'm going to dive in. We're here today with John C. Riley, star of uh, The Sisters Brothers, a few movies actually. The Sisters Brothers, which is going to be uh, premiering at the Venice Film Festival. Also, uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Don't forget about yeah. Look at Ralph, too. And uh, also, uh, see other. Yeah, four movies actually coming Stan out before January, yeah. What's the one I'm missing? Uh, Sherlock Holmes oh, with yeah. Will Ferrell, yeah, yeah, or Holmes and Watson, it's called. You like staying busy? I I like relaxing, actually, but <laughs> when when the sun's shining, you got to make hay, right? I hear you. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. Um, before we get into the movies, I kind of wanted to dive back a little bit. Uh, you know, when you started your career, you started with Casualties of War, mm-hmm. Brian De Palma, also We're No Angels and Days of Thunder, that's Neil Jordan and Tony Scott. So these kind of cinema titans. I'm curious what you, like what were the uh, lessons My learned? whole career has been cinema titans. Sure, sure. <laughs> so it seems like, you, you dive like in with one tops the next. And I realized when I got that first job, because you know, at that point I was 22 years old, coming out of Chicago. I'd never been in an airplane before, let alone in a movie. And... Uh, after I did Casualties and I met this amazing guy, Sean Penn and Brian De Palma, I realized, like, oh, okay, well, I've gotten off to a pretty good start here. Uh, I should try to, like, have everything top the next if I can, you know, like, because um, I was just so thrilled to be working on anything, literally anything. I was taking auditions in Chicago while I was doing theater there when I was at, just out of college, and I, I just wanted to make a buck you know what I mean yeah. I was just trying to get out of the south side of Chicago and then um, and then it just occurred to me like I think part of it was that I somehow didn't believe that you could really have a career in movies like when I was a kid I thought of movie actors as like the re- that was what they really were like I couldn't even uh, I had a reference points for theater in my life I'd done a lot of theater since I was a little kid and so I understood, like, that life, what, what it means to be, like, an actor doing plays. But movie guys, like, I remember just, like, watching Gene Hackman in French Connection in the theater and going, wow, what a cool guy. Like, I just thought that's who he was. I didn't, I didn't put it together that actors were people <laughs> somehow, movie <laughs> actors anyway, because they seem so much bigger than life. Yeah. But, um... But once I started to get going, and I had some great mentors early on. Sean Penn was a great mentor of mine. I wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for Sean Penn. Because Sean advocated for me on that first movie. I was originally cast in Casualties of War as a day player. Mm-hmm. I had just one scene where I got my arm blown off. And then the casting changed while I, when I got over to Thailand. It, they, they recast a couple different parts, and I ended up moving into one of the leads of the movie. Yeah. Um, 
I think partially because, or maybe entirely because, Sean Penn believed in me, and he told, you know, it's a big risk. I had never been in a movie before, literally, not <laughs> never been on film before. So for a big Hollywood movie, that's a considerable risk to take. And I think, I mean, Sean and I actually have never talked about it, really? even though I've known him now for so long, and I, I feel so close to him and his whole family. Um, we've never talked about it, but I. I know that behind the scenes he must have said to Brian, like, Brian De Palma, like, don't worry, this kid can do it. Because um, we'd done a lot of rehearsing for that movie where I was sort of reading utility roles for the characters that weren't there. And I was coming at it from a theatrical perspective, which is like, you just doesn't matter if you think you're an 80-year-old Vietnamese man. That's what you're being asked to do, so you have to throw yourself into it. And so... Um, like, for instance, there was an 80-year-old Vietnamese man in one of these scenes, and the, we didn't have someone there when we were rehearsing, so they were like, Dear John, you, you read that part. Like, <laughs> so I think I just impressed Sean early on with my enthusiasm and my willingness to just like, let go of my ego and do whatever it was that needed to be done to tell the story that day. And there was, a, there was a lot of ego in that room. You know, the, yeah. A lot of young actors who were feeling like, uh, you know, they needed to kind of go toe-to-toe with Sean or something or prove that they were as tough as him or whatever. And I was like, I'm an actor, man. Like, I, I, Sean could kick my ass. I don't, <laughs> like, I don't need to prove myself in that way. Check this out. There's a know, window the, washer the going window by. Next door here. I wonder if you can see me. Can you see me? <laughs> I don't think so. No. We're reflective. Anyway, uh, so, yeah. So, Sean was an early advocate of mine, and I really do owe my life in movies to him and Brian De Palma and Art Linson, those are the yeah. first three people who, you know, just threw caution to the wind and gave me that first shot. So, cool. Well, I think about I forgot this. what you asked me, well, but I started film. off with Titans of the Cinema. <laughs> I think did. was your question. Yeah, and, and Tony Scott and Neil Jordan. I'm just curious what you what you learned early on from guys like that. Well, Tony Scott was actually my fourth movie. The first one was Casualty with Brian De Palma. Mm-hmm. Then it was Neil Jordan on We're No Angels, and then State of Grace with State Phil Juano. Yeah. yeah. Um, all three with Sean, but I should point out, just as a point of pride, because it's something that I've done through my whole life, as much as I admire Sean and appreciate everything that he did for me, I had to earn every one of those spots. It wasn't like Sean was saying, you have to cast this guy, I like him. He was saying, this kid's good, give him a chance, and then for all three of those movies I had to audition extensively for and show the director that I actually had the goods. Um, so, yeah. So, you, there's no free lunch, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> right, yeah. uh, Brian's obviously a very singular filmmaker. Um, you know, did I keep coming back to the question like what 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 do you what did you learn from from him, from from a Tony Scott, from Neil Jordan, from you know, just early on when you're first getting your start, were you scared starting to become a screen actor? Uh well, I wasn't especially scared. I think ma- mostly because I was sort of ignorant about what, what, how big of an opportunity it was. To me, I mean, initially, I was so blown away by that first part I got, that day, just that day player role. Like one, just any part in a movie, I was like, oh my God, I'm, they're going to fly me to <laughs> Thailand. Like, it was insane. So I was already in a place of extreme gratitude and wonderment. But in terms of being nervous, like... I've been acting since I was eight years old, so I knew, yeah. like, well, I, I know how to do this. 
I'm sure there's a lot of technical stuff that I don't understand. And to this day, there's quite a bit of technical stuff that I don't understand. But what's most important for actors in front of the camera is to lose yourself and to be confident and to just completely submerge yourself into the material. So that I I already knew I could do. I do remember a couple moments on that movie, though, where I remember once... I had seen Sean, I think, ask for another take. You know, he, you know, can we do another one? I want to do another one. I have something else I want to do, which is something like with seniority, it's pretty common among actors on movies. But then I thought, like, we, you know, we we're doing a scene, and I was like, Brian, can we? Can I do one more? I, I, you know, and he was like, <laughs> Everyone, John Riley wants another take, so we're going to do another take. And I remember looking at him in this kind of guileless way, like, What is that a is that a problem? Like, Sean did it. Like, is it? I didn't understand it was this big deal. I thought, like, Don't you want the best from me? Like, uh, you know, like, give me another crack at it. Like, um, so I I realized early on, like, all of this kind of deference to famous people and and treating directors like these legends or these screen titans it was there was no future in that it was gotcha. just that's not that's not what they wanted and it's not what was going to help me accomplish what i needed to do every day i needed to just look at the people i was working with as partners and as peers and as people that i was working together with in collaboration with not these people i was lucky to be around you know sure. i understood i was yeah. lucky to be around them but that's not the way you, you have to. You, no, I hear you. You can behave in those situations. You have to be in that space of your working. Yeah, yeah. Did you have a roadmap at all in those early stages, like what you wanted your career to be, what how you wanted to get there? No, any, any idea whatsoever? No, not at all, really. Like, for, like I said, I didn't really have any reference points in my yeah. life. I grew up on the south side of Chicago in a very Irish Catholic kind of upbringing, and there was just nobody. There were barely any people that were doing theater, you know, let alone movies. Like, it just seemed like this crazy thing so I didn't have a road map but then I started to create um, not so much a road map because you know whenever I hear actors talk about like well my goals are this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that like the truth is an actor's life is one of like hitching your wagon to other people's momentum you know so yeah. this idea that you're planning something, like most of the time, especially when you're starting out you're just looking for opportunities that other people are bringing to you not you know, looking for, you know, trying to accomplish some some specific goal or some kind of role or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, you know, that said, I did sort of develop like a point of view about um, quality control. And Sean really taught me that early on. He was like, listen, because I, I remember we were doing our second film together, We're No Angels, and I had been offered this other sort of it was a good movie too, actually. Um, it was uh, this movie, Memphis Bell. I remember I had been offered this role of Memphis Bell, and and I was trying to decide between doing Memphis Bell or doing State of Grace with Sean. And uh, I was really struggling with it because I felt really beholden to Sean because he had, had already you know, like taught me so much. And I was, I took him aside and I was like, "Hey, man, I'm." trying to figure out what to do here i got these two offers i really want to do this thing with you but this other great part too i'm not sure what i should do and he's like well what do you want to do and i'm like well i don't know my agents are saying that i should do this other thing and he's like who i was like my agent said he's like 
your agent? I was like, yeah. He's like, that's the last person you should be listening to for advice about what you should do. And it was so counterintuitive to me at the time. I thought agents were the gatekeepers of everything, you know. And Sean really clued me in early on. Like, those people have an agenda, and it's not your agenda. They're looking for 10% of the most amount of money that you can get. Yeah, Yeah. so you have to just ignore everyone but that inner voice of the, of yourself as an artist what is what is it that you're drawn to do what it, you know what do you you know what do you see yourself doing your best work at so needless to say i passed on memphis bell although i loved that movie i thought it was really good yeah and yeah. uh i love a world war ii story we had gary Oldman last year talking about uh state of grace on the show here love that movie that was wild Gary was in a wild place at that time in his life, man. He, I, I wonder what he said about it. Cause he was talking about how, you know, just finding the character, the smallest thing, could help him find the character. Like he was trying on a jacket and he flipped his hair and suddenly he saw it. He had the character. I remember that hair yeah. flip. I yeah, saw yeah. him do that in the movie. It's like this kind of chip on his shoulder psychological gesture. Yeah. yeah. He's fantastic. That was just wild. Let's remember like a 19-year-old or 20-year-old uh, Uma Thurman just yeah. wafting up onto the set to visit Gary at that moment. I was like, oh, my <laughs> God. Like, is this what happens when you're a famous movie star? <laughs> like, people like that just show up to visit you? Yeah. Well, you know, along the way, uh, you know, you kind of made this transition eventually to, to comedy. You started working with... You know, Judd Apatow and Kasdan and, and Adam McKay. A long, long, long time after the yeah, movies yeah. we're talking about yeah, just exactly. now. But, yeah. I, I'm just, it's, it's interesting to me to, to have that kind of shift in the, in the middle of your career. Uh, and, and you're so great at it, you're natural at it. Uh, you know, some of the stuff you did with Paul Thomas Anderson had inherent comedy to it as well. So just what was that about? Was that a conscious decision? What, what was going on Well, like I, like I was just saying about just actors not. having goals, you know, it's like <laughs> you're just... You're trying to stay in the groove, you know, like you're trying to like not get in your way and not put preconceptions on things. So when things, good opportunities come your way, you have to follow your your instincts. And my instincts were then and still are like look for inspired people that you think are f- funny or challenging or more intelligent than you or whatever it is, uh, people that are going to challenge you and bring you to a new place than you've already been. So I met. Um, Will Ferrell through Molly Shannon and then um, and Will and I just had right away this sort of simpatico feeling towards each other and we almost did Anchorman together but that didn't work out because I was working on something but when the, luckily when those guys uh, did their next movie they came to me again for Talladega Nights and um, I realized then like it doesn't it's not for me. Like, there's this great, great quote that I always think about, which is, um, "What other people think of you is none of your business." So this idea that, like, well, I'm a dramatic actor or I'm a comedic actor, it's like just never mind about what other people are saying about you. Just do your work, you know, and work with people that inspire you, and and go towards material that you think is inspired and and well done, and. Um, I had done a lot of improvisation already with Paul Thomas Anderson for his films, and and um, Adam McKay and Will Ferrell saw that I was like really down to improvise, and that's like the sort of lifeblood of what they do together. Mm-hmm. So it was just it was a real no brainer. I mean, I suppose if you were trying to create some profile that you're a serious actor, 
you would avoid doing comedy, but that just seems stupid to me. Like, mm. if you can do it, I mean, that's sort of my mantra for my whole life. Do whatever you can, you know, if it's sing a song or write a poem or be in a comedy or a drama or whatever it is, like, you should do it. You should, you should, don't let some uh, perceived box keep you from exploring uh, artistic avenues for yourself. Yeah. By the way, why has it been 20 years since you and Paul Thomas Anderson have made a movie together? Which I cannot We've believe. We've both been, been very busy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm still very close friends with Paul. Sure. We see each other all the time. So, but that was always sort of our agreement. You know, as the we did three movies together in a row, and the, you know, after the first one, I said to him, "Listen, only put me in a movie if you see that there's a role for me. Don't do it because you're my friend." It goes back to this kind of arrangement I had with Sean mm-hmm. on those first few movies. It's like, I don't want to be in. I don't want these opportunities if, if they're favors from you. I want these opportunities because I'm the right guy for the job. So that, that's sort of what I said to Paul, too, after that first movie. Like, look, don't feel like you have to do anything. You're an artist, and you have a vision for your story. And if I'm the right guy, I'm the right guy. No no harm, no foul. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. no, no offense if you need to go a different way or whatever. And so... He took that to heart after my third movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll speak for a lot of people. We'd love to see you guys work together again. I mean, that was yeah. Fun. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. That, I just don't that, know. That was film what school for me. Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, Magnolia. I was in film school in 1999. That collaboration was a pretty big deal for a lot of us. So we'd, we'd love to see you back. Well, I hope Paul's listening. <laughs> Somehow <laughs> I doubt it. He's very busy. What did you think of Phantom Thread? I loved it. Right. I was loved it. I, I mean, I was somewhat mystified by the lack of industry support in particular awards for that movie although it was rewarded in some ways I thought how can you look at a movie that is you that mean is, in like the lead up to the Oscars because it got the best picture nomination it right it got director. nominated but like it's some so I just thought it should have swept yeah, you know yeah, what I mean yeah. Paul not only wrote and directed that movie he shot that movie yeah. he was the director of photography and the camera operator yeah and it was Daniel Day-Lewis in front of the camera. It was like not like a walk in the park. You know, yeah. you know like Daniel is a demanding actor who, who demands your attention. Like he, He's as demanding with everyone around him as he is with himself. He's a brilliant, brilliant actor. So the idea that Paul was like having to take care of all these technical aspects and be in this relationship with Daniel, I thought that was just a stunning display of virtuosic filmmaking. Yeah. Um, and I also f- thought the film was really funny and, yeah. you know, deeply uh, just really well observed about relationships and and what goes on between men and women and what aesthetics mean, wh- why mm-hmm. aesthetics are so important to some people. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, yeah you're right. that's what I thought of that fancy thread. <laughs> you're a fan. Yeah. Uh, before I get into the new movie, I did want to start, I did want to talk about The Thin Red Line also, just because mm-hmm. I... Anybody that was in the Thin Red Line, I want to know their story. You're going to have to get to Jacques Odiard at some point. But <laughs> yeah, we're going to get there. But, have, but, but I, I, do, yeah. I, I just, you know, it was a larger part like many people. And it, it's it a good got, problem to have, like a lot of movies to, <laughs> that people want to talk about. Yeah. yeah. But tell me about your experience working with Malik and, and uh, you know, were, were you heartbroken at, at the, the, the part getting whittled down like a number of the other oh, actors? Oh, no. no. Not at all. I was... Uh, 
You know, I quickly realized I was doing a play in Chicago. I was doing The Streetcar Named Desire in Chicago at the Steppenwolf Theater at the time when I auditioned for that movie. And I was just like, I was such a huge fan of Badlands and Days of Heaven that I was, I was like, I got to at least be, I, I want this guy to know that I exist. I, <laughs> I just wanted to see an audition of mine. That's, that was like, that was as much as I was hoping for, you know. So I made this audition tape for him, and there was this. I remember this whole sequence where I, I was. I auditioned for a few different parts in that movie, and I remember I auditioned for Elias Coteas's part at one point. And it, there's this all this intense scenes where he's in a foxhole and he's communicating by radio to Nick Nolte's character, and he's getting these orders that he's disobeying, and it's this super intense while they're being fired on scene. And I remember like, well. It's got to, I can't, like, I, I, I can't have the, the casting person be feeding these, these intense lines off camera. Like, the, the cues aren't going to be there, and it's not going to have the intensity that it needs to have. So I figured out this brilliant thing, I thought, which was take a micro cassette recorder, and I recorded all of the other lines on the micro cassette, and I held it like a radio. So I would, I would say my line, and then I'd press play, and you'd hear it the response come over the cassette recorder and it worked really well i got a part in the movie which not that part but i got a part in the movie but anyway to answer your question about whether i was heartbroken about the amount of my role that was cut down from the film i quickly realized once i got there that terry in my mind terry's more of a philosopher than a, a filmmaker in a lot of ways he's not he doesn't have the same Concerns on a set that uh, other directors I've worked with have had. Terry, it seemed to me, was just someone who was looking for the truth every day. He was looking for honesty and looking for the truth. And if he could find that truth in a bird flying by or in the drops of dew on a piece of grass or on an extra or on Sean Penn or on Nick and Nolte, that's what he was going to film that day. Um, often at golden hour, you know, or magic hour at the end of the day. Um, so I realized, like, we're just, you know, I said to Terry one day, like, I'm, I was reading the book again, Terry, because my, my character that I, that I was given it was actually the voice piece of um, James Jones, who wrote the book. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like his worldview came through in that character. Yeah. So I thought, cool, I'm like the, the voice of the author, and this is the great part. Um, but then I realized, like, when I, I said to Terry, you know, Terry's reading the book again today, and he's like, oh, you read the book, John? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you read the whole thing? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I read the whole thing. He's like, oh, I haven't, I, he said, I haven't read a book all the way through in many, many years. I was like, what are you talking about, Terry? What are you doing? He's like, oh, I just open a book to whatever page it is, and then I read as long as I'm interested. And so I realized, like, okay, this guy is not thinking in a linear way. Okay. He wrote this script, and it's based on this book, and it does have this linear thread to the script, but we're not doing that. That was just the excuse to all get us all here, and now he's going to try to find some truth. Mm-hmm. So by the time post-production happened, you know, Terry was very gracious and called me and said, it was the greatest line. He's like, he's like John, I just wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, and everyone does a Terry Malick impression, <laughs> by the way, who has worked with him. I felt that some parts of the picture were like ice flows that separated from the main. 
And so some of your scenes, well, John, they floated off. And I was like, that's all right, Terry. And like that, that was, that's always been, I always, I've said that to many directors, this, which is, I just provide the coal, you know, you turn them into diamonds, man. Like, yeah. I'm not precious about this piece of coal or that piece of coal. I just, I just throw everything I have at it. And then good luck in the editing room is how I feel about film. Film is a director's medium, you know? Yeah. It's not an actor's medium. So you can't get too hung up on. Or too precious about any little moment, you know? Well, the result is you're in one of the finest films ever made, so... Oh, thanks. <laughs> there you are. Let's talk about the Sisters Brothers. Uh, again, I, I say I, I think this is one of your best performances. I loved uh, your interplay with Joaquin, and uh, this is Jacques Odiard, the director of A Prophet. Um, again, one of my favorite movies of recent times. I'm curious about, you know, do you feel comfortable working in a Western, kind of slipping into that cadence, the language? Yeah, I mean... Uh, for lack of a, I mean, if there's one thing that's true about my career, and it's ironic, I'm talking to Variety today, but that is the one thing about my career. It has variety. Like, I wish in some some days when I'm really tired and having to reinvent the wheel yet again for another role, another movie, I wish, like, I was the type of actor that just had a sort of persona and did the same thing within reason in different films but uh just the way it is with me i do different things so a western was one of the few things that i hadn't done and i love working outdoors i've been craving especially after i had just done stan and ollie where i was encased in a fat suit and prosthetics and indoors and theaters filled with fake smoke for three months i was really anxious to get outside and and live that kind of like cowboy life so Mm -hmm. uh yeah i mean look you know what it's like to be a little kid every little boy wants to be a soldier and a cowboy (laughs) and a spaceman and you know all these things like so i'm no different like for sure i wanted to be a cowboy um but i've been offered westerns in the past and passed on them because i thought they were really cliche or they were sort of trafficking in this nostalgia about the West as opposed to what was actually going on in the West in the 1850s. So when I read Patrick DeWitt's book, which I bought the rights to after I read it, um, I, th- I thought he just had an amazingly original take on the genre where, I mean, the most striking thing about Patrick's book, and I think Jacques' film, is that Unlike most movie cowboys, and we're not really cowboys. We don't rustle cattle. We don't <laughs> handle, and we just we ride horses. So I guess that's cowboyish. But and we kill people when we use Bounty guns. Kinda, yeah. yeah, but um, we're not really cow pokes, as it were. But anyway, what really struck me about Patrick's book was the characters had this emotional availability, as opposed to like a Clint Eastwood movie where. It's almost like this opaque quality to, mm-hmm. to the character. You can't. You're, you're the whole time. It's wonderful to watch because you're wondering what is he thinking? What is he? What's he going to do? What is he? How does he feel about this? Like, and when you read the book, The Sisters Brothers, you are right there about what it feels like to kill somebody. What does it feel like to be trapped in this symbiotic relationship with your brother? Uh, and what does it feel like to 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 look at a toothbrush and not know what it is you know like so all these amazingly uh, original takes on on the time period in patrick's book so when this came about i knew like oh this is it like even hoping to do a western and this is it like um 
And I'm glad that you responded to the film, and I'm glad that you liked my work in it because I've worked harder on this film than and, and anything I've ever done. You know, from the pre-production phase when my wife and I um, got the rights and developed it into a script with Patrick Dewitt. To, the, to meeting Jacques, it was my wife Alison Dickey's idea to go to Jacques. By the yeah. way, she was I'm I was, I'm sort of a I'm a fan of Jacques, and I I knew his films, but I wasn't tracking them in real time like my wife was. My wife was seeing each film as it came out and saying, "Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god!" Mm-hmm. So she'd already strung all of Jacques' films together in this way that I hadn't yet. But I, you know, like like anybody, you see the Prophet, you're like, "Oh my god, this guy is one of the best in the whole world." Yeah. Like. So, uh, yeah, so I worked really hard with my wife putting this film together, and there were many, many moments of, um, you know, it seemed like the whole thing was going to blow up in our faces and fall apart. There's there's language difference between France and America. There's all these cultural differences. There's different ways of making films. There's different ways of thinking about film. You know, the French think about film like, like really like one of the arts, if you're a film director in France, you're treated like Picasso. You know, you're treated like a fine artist, which really is what it is. At its, at its highest aspirations, like film is a, a true art form like that. So anyway, there were many, many moments along the way where it was just like, just seemed like insurmountable to get this big crew of people from France to, to work with these you know, Americans, and then we shot in Spain and Romania and France. So every time there was like it was like a virtual Tower of Babel, trying to get all these different people to to work in concert together. But we eventually did, and I think the film really speaks to that. It reflects the film reflects the reality of the West at that time, which was that there were Chinese people and French people and Hungarians and Russians and all these people coming from all over the world in this mad search for gold or for opportunity or for a freer life. Um, So what seems counterintuitive at first when you think like, oh, a Frenchman to direct a Western, when you actually look at what was going on in San Francisco and the Pacific Northwest in the 1850s, you're like, oh, no, what better person than someone from Europe who understands what that initial impulse, impulse of all those people was. Um, and that's, you know, that's the, in a larger way, I think the film really captures a lot of that. And then in, in the more internal way, like all of us brought very personal parts of our lives to the story. I have brothers um, and everyone involved in the film, whether it's Jacques or Joaquin or Riz or Jake, everyone brings some kind of family history with them to the story. And I think when I watch the film, uh, I feel like it's a really personal film for everybody, mm-hmm. and that was our ma- and I'm really that's immensely gratifying because our main concern when we we're looking for a director originally was we wanted someone to make a film the way Paul Thomas Anderson makes a film, or the way Martin Scorsese makes a film, or the way Terrence Malick makes a film, where it's a personal thing, it's a personal story. We didn't want to hire someone who could make a good western. You know, we wanted to find someone who was as moved by the book and and the characters as we were, and then we want to hand the whole thing to that person and say, do what you will, and make a story that resonates for you personally. And so... I think at first Jacques couldn't believe that we were just sort of <laughs> dumping this opportunity in his lap. You know, like, like, 
like most people in the film business, you get used to looking out for con jobs where people are <laughs> beware of gifts that come, you know, yeah. uh, uninvited. But um, he eventually came around, and and all of us ended up really putting our heart and souls into this movie. Was that part of the drive to film in Europe as well? All of that. I think else? that was more driven. Number one, you can't really find um, exterior locations uh, in America that you're allowed to shoot in, like. Like we were in the vir- we were in the vir- Spain's version of like Yosemite, yeah. which you, you know, good luck shooting in Yosemite here, or even finding these kind of landscapes without um, telephone wires and billboards and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, I think it was a good idea for that reason. First of all, because we could find these wild locations that really felt like the time, and. But I think Jacques' impetus for wanting to shoot there was he was very wary of coming outside of his comfort zone as a filmmaker. He didn't want to suddenly be, like, selling out to Hollywood or whatever you want to call it. He didn't want to just be... He didn't want to have to be absorbed into an American system of filmmaking. He wanted to make his films the way he makes them, which are brilliant, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So once they realized, like, wait... We could find... They did a location scout here in America and in Canada. Um, but at the end of the day, I think once they started to see these pictures coming in from Spain and Romania, they were like, oh, wow, like, we have it right here in our back door. And then they, they could use their crew and they could, you know, just the spirit of the film like, would be more f- familiar for, for Jacques than it would be uh, if he had just completely plopped himself into the middle of an American production. Yeah. Uh, let's touch briefly on Stan and Ollie. Uh, you know, uh, Laurel and Hardy, you and Steve Coogan. Yeah. Uh, you're a big fan growing up of Laurel oh, and Hardy. Oh, huge yeah. fan. Yeah. Laurel and Hardy are like the fountainhead of it all for me. <laughs> you know, like, I think for a lot of actors, um, anyway, people old enough to know who Laurel and Hardy are, I think, um, I mean, Samuel Beckett was an enormous fan of Laurel and Hardy. Uh, th- by way of our director on Laurel and, of the Stan and Ollie movie, I've just heard that Martin Scorsese really loved the film, and he grew up watching Laurel and Hardy. And so, anyone with any brains knows that Laurel and Hardy are very, very special and unique, and and uh, and they were the biggest movie stars in the world for a while there. Um, so, sorry, what was the question? Talk about Stan and Ollie. I think we'll just talk about it. Yeah, because <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, unfortunately. But uh, it's very cool. Yeah, to, we're, to, we're gonna be um, we're, we're we're gonna get we're hopefully gonna get a North American distributor out of Toronto at the Toronto Film Festival. But stay tuned. You're playing on London that. Fest as well. Yeah, we're gonna close yeah. the London Film Festival, but we're hoping to hoping to get a distribu- distributor here before that. Um, anyway, you were rocking out a fat suit. You said for that, obviously. Yeah, so. fat suit and prosthetics by the amazing Mark Coulier. Who, oh, cool. Yeah, so we decided to tell. You know, we decided on that movie. Well, you can watch the films, so there's no point in recreating the films because yeah. they already exist in their utter brilliance and they're widely available. And and I developed the script with Steve Coogan and John Baird and um, Jeff Pope. And as we're crafting the story and what we were going to focus on for those two guys, because it was originally kind of by-the-numbers sort of biopic script that we had. And then as we went along, I was like, guys, anyone with a phone, which is everyone now, can Google or Wikipedia this information. 
I think anything you can find out on Wikipedia, we shouldn't do in the movie. Because everyone can, anyone who wants to know anything about Laurel and Hardy can just instantly access that. And that's just a feature of our world now that people, you know, if, they want, if you want to become educated about something, you can just tap right into it. And so to me, the most interesting part of their relationship was what was going on behind the scenes. Like, what was their friendship like? And that is very, very little um, candid footage of them. There's been many books written about them, and they spoke um, about their relationship. But it's not widely known. And, um, and then this idea that... I mean, the, the film always had this plot of moving through their theatrical tours, that, or their last theatrical tour, which was something that they had to do, because unlike Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin... Harold Lloyd, they had no back end on their movies. Oh, yeah. They were like worldwide movie stars for six years there or something. But they had no back end. They were salaried employees because Hal Roach put them together. Mm-hmm. So they had to do these theatrical tours because they were broke when they were old. When they could no longer get movie work, they decided to just go back to this sort of music hall background that they both had. And... Uh, and they say in their book, in the, you know, when you hear them talk about their life, they say like that is when they actually became very close personally. Oh, that's cool. That when they were working together, together in their heyday, they were sort of like um, co-workers, you know? Yeah. They were very different personalities. You know, Babe Hardy was like very into, you know, the, 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 the pleasures of life, you know, eating and drinking and, and playing golf and... You know, just living the high life, everything that was offered, you know, out here in Hollywood at that time. And Stan was a workaholic. He was this nonstop writing, who was sort of shadow directing most of their movies, coming up with a lot of the gags and that kind of thing. So when they would work, you know, the workday would end and they'd just split and go, you know, Stan would go home and work and Oliver would go and drink and party and play (laughs) golf. Apparently he was like a savant golfer. And he would gamble on golfing and win lots of money. But oh, well. anyway, so then they, you know, when they started to do these tours, they had to be together all the time, and from the train to the hotel to the stage, backstage, waiting. So they spent all this time together, and we all decided like that is a very rich vein because no one knows what really happened yeah. backstage between the two of them. That's a great framework. Yeah. So there's a chance to really to, to really look at. What does it mean to be in a in a creative partnership with someone that you're that close to, that you're that tied to, that, that you have that much love for? And it ends up being a very emotional story. I, I hope people enjoy it as much as I did. Can't wait for that. And then touch on Wreck-It Ralph, you know, uh, just be, being able to front this big Disney animated enterprise like this. Well, it's our second one, so yeah. I'm getting used to it. Yeah. But <laughs> It goes back to improvisation, really, why I love working on those these Wreck-It Ralph movies so much, because unlike every other kind of filmmaking, when you're in the recording studio, there's no concern about daylight. There's no even concern about time, really, because you're always ahead of the animators. So you can just goof around and improvise and throw ideas back and forth with the writer and the director, and it's just happening there in real time. You can try anything. So there's an incredible m- amount of freedom uh, involved and I, I love that. And you end up when you're given that kind of freedom and you're given the ability to improvise. What ends up happening is you sort of channel a lot of your own personal heart into it. And um, 
that was my one of my main concerns going into the first Wreck-It Ralph movie was like, yeah, we can make this big, shiny, exciting, dynamic uh, distraction for kids, but we should never forget, like, this is a real opportunity to speak to kids all over the whole world. Like, let's put some heart in it. Like, let's put something that, let's make our overall mission one of something more than just entertainment, you know? Like, let's connect to people emotionally. So... I feel like we did that in the first one, and man, I was just I was just do, doing ADR the other day because the uh, the sequel is nearly done, and I was weeping like just watching this short little scene. Um, I feel like we accomplished it again on this in the sequel. A lot of, a lot of heart. I have a son yeah. this time, so I can't wait to show him. The oh, movie. good. Well, these uh, check check out all these movies: Sisters, Brothers, uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet, Stan and Ollie, and the Sherlock Holmes film. What's that called again? Holmes and Holmes Watson. Holmes and Watson. Yeah. Uh, the man's busy and he needs to take a vacation. Got four partnership one. movies coming out. Like. <laughs> no, there you go. Yeah. John C. Riley, thanks for doing the show, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you.